All right, everyone, welcome. Uh, it's March now, and we're heading, we're still uh, working through infant development, um, and we're halfway through the course, so we're going to start moving a little bit quicker from here on out. <clears throat> but I wanted to end the infant section talking about cognition in infancy. We've gone through uh, the physical development of infancy, uh, and then we went through the social emotional development. Now we're going into the cognitive development area. And there's kind of a subtopic that we need to address. So it may take more than just this one single lecture to kind of get through everything in that we do need to talk about language and language development, because that is one of the unique things that make humans human is the language we use. Now, uh, other species have their own language, um, and, and in some cases, uh, well, actually, in a lot of cases, we still haven't cracked, quote unquote, those languages of those animals uh, or those species. But when it comes to humans, what's unique about the human experience is that we have uh, a language that is very complex in that not everyone understands it, even though we're the same species. So there's people who can speak a Spanish, Tana Otham, uh, German, uh, and, and the like, and we don't always um, speak the same language. Yet a lot of research has indicated that at least in the brain regions, no matter what language we we're, we're hearing, while the translation areas of the brain, the areas that try to understand the, the, the cognitive meaning of words, um, the areas of the brain that are associated with emotions and everything uh, and processing things on an emotional, nonverbal level are still very active regardless of what language uh, you're listening to. Indeed, we, we have found that um, uh, people's moods can be manipulated even if it's in a different language. Um, and so we have this very complex thing. The other thing that's complex about our language is we have a what's called a past tense language, meaning that we can reflect upon past behaviors and past events. Uh, if we look at what we know about the language of other species, is, is it's not a reflective language that they're using. It's always a language more of a survival, the here and now, and how do we get through this moment? So we have a unique uh, language system. So this section kind of has two parts to it. First, we'll talk about cognition in general, and then we will talk about, um, uh, the, the, well, we'll talk about, um, hold on just a second. We'll talk about uh, 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 general cognition, uh, and we'll also talk about uh, language. Apologize, I was just changing to closed captioning, and the computer decided to do some things. So, if you remember uh, uh, back in the theory section of the class, the the really kind of uh, uh, I don't want to say leading, but a kind of base theory that had been used to explain cognition in childhood was Jean Piaget. Um, uh, 1896 to 1980. And remember what he, and he, he was a Swiss psychologist in, interested in epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. So 
uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what we use to say the scientific method is one of the best ways to understand knowledge, those kinds of things, and they come up with philosophical arguments. So he was already interested in what builds knowledge. That was his area of interest. Um, and he gives us a couple principles outside of those stages that 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 we that that uh, he talks about, and and these principles tend to be um, uh, validated by re, uh, uh, repeated research. So the, so these these principles are called principles for that very reason. The first one is intelligence is an active, constructive, and dynamic process. When we talk about intelligence, and we'll, we'll take a look at intelligence when we get to learning later in the class, um, is that it's this, this cognitive process of decision making, uh, it gets into if you, understanding of abstractions um, in the abstract world. Uh, it, it's high math ability, high reading ability, all those are, you know, intelligence. And if we look at uh, uh, most intelligence tests are set at a mean of 100 with a standard de deviation of 15, which, which means that the majority of people, we, we can say about 70% of people in intelligence tests uh, score between an 85 and an 115, with 50% being below and above at 100. And so when we look at uh, intelligence, and one of the biggest arguments in the beginning of in study of intelligence is that intelligence was this fixed thing. It was it went back to uh, the flavors of Plato and and uh, and, and his group, where uh, they felt intelligence was something that was fixed and uh, is immovable. So they you know they use intelligence tests clear up. Uh, in fact, some places still use intelligence tests for placement into a job or placement into a school, a special school of some type or, and the like. So, um, but what we have found, and, and Piaget was one of the first to kind of state this, is that intelligence is not fixed. Um, indeed, uh, we know that just purely going from col to college um, your, 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 uh, your intelligence score goes up 15 points just by participating in, in the college and educational process. Um, and that's just one example, but we know that um, there, you know, what we know between the play of biology and genetics and evolution and intelligence is everyone does have a set ceiling. Um, for, for, for their IQ and meaning that there's a, a set level that a person can get to. But what we found is, is that uh, at a certain point, a higher IQ or a lower IQ become a disadvantage. And so we believe that these upper limits are uh, set that way because once you get above about 115, 120 um, IQ, having a I, higher IQ is actually a deficit. Um, in fact, a, a big longitudinal research done way back when uh, it was a psychologist, and I apologize, I forget his name right at the moment, I'll bring it up later, followed a large group of uh, uh, people who were given IQ tests and they had people in the superior IQ versus the deficit. Or, or normal, I should say. 
And he hypothesized that as these children grew up and became adults, that they would become the natural leaders. So they would be our elected officials. They would be the people in charge of cities. They'd be the CEOs of companies. And, uh, uh, and, and he actually could have not been more wrong. Um, actually, uh, people with high IQs, um, uh, even though popular media would like to make it look this way, actually ended up leading pretty mediocre lives. Many of them became uh, uh, utility workers. Um, some became, a few became police officers, a few uh, store clerks, but only, only about 1% of them, which is way below what you would expect in a given population, actually became at some level successful. I believe one or two became uh, judges. But the majority of people in the normal IQ range were the ones that were more likely to find success in the world. The conclusion to that was, is that um, at a certain level of IQ, you're unable to deal with the complex social world. And, uh, and so that plays into uh, success in our world, given that human beings are a social beings. So principle number one, intelligence is not a fixed. It's something that can change. It's something that can be developed. Uh, the second uh, uh, principle is mistakes children make are usually meaningful because mistakes give insight into the nature of their thought processes. So what Piaget is, is basically arguing in, the, in this, this situation is that it's through the observation of mistakes that we understand where a child is uh, developmentally, thought process-wise, um, uh, all those types of things. If you think about you know, uh, 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 successful children versus non-successful children, uh, a, a good portion of non-successful children have parents who are so um, perfectionist with their children that they prevent, in a lot of ways, any mistakes to happen to the child. They prevent any type of potential trauma that isn't uh, um, damaging, but learning, the type you can learn from. Uh, they prevent any type of accidents. And we have found through the years uh, that these children tend to be the ones who do not do so well uh, developmentally you know, through later childhood and into the teen years and even into adults. So uh, what Piaget is saying is one, children need to make mistakes because that's how they learn. And two, the adult interaction with the children, it's through children's mistakes we learn from that child. So that's principle number two. Principle number three is that children's development, the structure of their thinking changes and there's new modes of thoughts are based on earlier structures. This is just basically an argument that knowledge is not fixed. Uh, it's kind of going back to the intelligence uh, type of argument where the way a child thinks uh, will change over time. And indeed what we have found through lifespan um, uh, studies is that we change the way we think throughout our lifespan. Um, we have this false uh, assumption that we've always been, you know, consistent with our thoughts and our memories and our feelings and our emotions. 
But if we actually had a recording of our entire life, we would see changes in, in, in our emotional output, in our, the way we think about the world, the way we process information does indeed change. And there's some population changes that we'll talk about when we get into adulthood and late adulthood. So these are the, the, the three principles that uh, Piaget is going to argue are the building blocks for knowledge. Uh, if you remember in his principle number three, he, he stated that uh, knowledge needs to be built. And how knowledge is built is through what's, what re, is referred to as schemas. A schema, and I'll read it, is a cognitive rate framework that lets us categorize concepts, objects, or experiences. What a schema really helps us do is it helps us differentiate uh, between two separate but maybe similar items. Um, and it allows us to categorize those that are similar. So in the bottom here, uh, if you'll notice, we have, we have a kitty and we have a dog, okay? Now, as an adult, we, we, we instantly recognize that these are two separate species. But if we look at it closer, I mean, they both have a nose, four legs, furry ears. And so there's a lot of similarities, but uh, there, there are some stark differences. Um, and so this creates what's called disequilibrium in the child's mind. And so that in order to deal with this situation, we're going to keep a categorization for these two and keep them in the same category. We're going to call this category animals because we know a lot of animals have four legs, or at least in the limited experience of an infant, four legs, a snout, eyes, ears. So this is going to be our schema, our overall schema of animal. But within that category, we're gonna name one a cat and two a dog in order to simplify that, that category, okay? And this is why, um, and again, when we get to language, we need to discuss this more. This is why it's really important to provide labels for children and accurate labels, uh, because you, we want to help them uh, organize their cognitive world into those structures, because that will enhance their learning abilities and give them more uh, processing room to process more complex problems as they develop. So as mentioned, children organize information into schemas and cognitive frameworks let's uh, categorize a concept and object. So in a schema, so in this example, you'll notice that we have three very different looking dogs, right? And so we wonder how could we put these three in the same category? Well, a schema, again, is just the most typical representation of something. It's, it may not even exist in reality, um, but it has all the representative components of this category. So you might guess, you know, we have the floppy ears, uh, they bark, uh, they all have these, you know, cute little snouts, the canines, they all have these four legs and a tail most. Um, and so in the schema, there's a 
rough structure you could think of a model that represents those those um uh, uh qualities of that that animal of the dog and then that's how that category is created regardless of it's a if it's a small little guy a big fluffy guy or one of these golden retrievers um you know that these are all representative of the schema that has been built which is um a dog okay so this process of taking in uh, new information so this may be have been our original schema right but then uh, we notice this guy uh, and this guy um, look very close to this. So we do what he called is accommodation, where we're accommodating newer features of the same species into one schema. Okay, I think we got that. All right. So those principles and the idea of schemas, this is the building blocks of knowledge and everything we do, if you look at uh, Piaget's stages, build on one another in, in the schema development, okay? And so if we look though, um, I'm just gonna put these out here. Um, what he felt the stage was for this uh, time period was the sensory motor uh, phase. And if you remember, if you think about sensory motor, the most basic example is an infant being able to reach out its hand in space and time and grab an object that it wants, such as a bottle or a toy or, or, or mom or dad, okay? And it's that ability to connect sensory experiences with perception and motor action, okay? Um, Now, the thing that probably uh, that Piaget probably gets in trouble for in our more modern time is this point number two is that he argued there's little emphasis on internal processes. All right, we have found that this is not true. Okay, this is one one part of Piaget's theory that simply is not true. Uh, what we have found, and if you've read uh, in the canvas page about um, what makes baby special, we find that they have a very active internal world. They have a very complex internal world, uh, as it says in that article, they do math better than we do. Um, and so this is the one part of Piaget's theory that has been debunked is that children have pl placed little emphasis on internal processes. Um, but we, we can understand, you know, the time at which uh, this was happening. All we had was observation. We didn't have the brain scanning abilities or the techniques or, or that we have today to investigate infant uh, life. And so what did we know about infants at that time? While they can control their bodily functions, they can't drink and uh, on their own, eat on their own, I should say. And so they must not place much focus on that internal type of control that is required for eating and for uh, defecating. And so based on those observations, the assumption was made that infants don't have a very complex internal world. But as the article uh, or in Canvas states, uh, that's very much not true. 
We know that during this stage, uh, there are four general trends in development. One is uh, goal-directed activity. We know that, uh, uh, you know, for example, we know that infants learn uh, over time to cry uh, differently for, for a different need, okay? And most of the time, it's usually the close caregiver the mother who can only understand the differentiations between them, but they are recordable to see. You can actually record infants based on their need, whether it's hunger, needing change, and, and they, they have a complete change in their language and, and their expression. And so we know that over time, they learn how to become goal-directed to try and achieve a certain outcome. Um, uh, the infant uh, general trend number two from the body to the outside world. Uh, this is the idea that um, uh, the, 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 the infant is there to try and figure out, uh, you know, they've been for nine months in this internal safe environment, and now they're existing in the outside world and they're learning how to kind of deal with that. Um, they develop what uh, 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 Piaget called object permanence, which is another partly debunked thing about infancy because we know that infants actually do have types of object permanence much earlier than 24 months of age. Uh, but there is this sense where the, the child, if we wanna put this more in modern terms that we have found, what an infant is looking for is not necessarily object permanence, but develop consistency within their world. So they want things to be predictable. And so what, had, what was mistakenly seen as an infant, uh, 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 I don't cry when an object disappears because they don't think it exists anymore. Um, that's been replaced with this idea that when you take that item away, you've, in, you've introduced inconsistency into that child's environment. And so the child is learning to deal with that wonderful thing we all have to deal with, and that's change, all right? So the other part uh, of, of the, 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 that was recognized in this developmental area was from, we go from uh, motor action to mental representation. And, and this can be seen in a child's representation of the world as they start to develop language. This is what we feel is the, the kind of the, area where uh, there's still work needing to be done because it's based on a motor action. And so there may be much more going on in the mental representation area. And we do know uh, from research that while this is an important process during this uh, time, there is growing evidence that infants do have a mental representation before motor action. Um, and so we'll need to keep an eye on number four um, to see how that plays out in the future. Because again, just like with uh, uh, this internal processing one, uh, this was uh, represented during a time where we didn't have the measurement tools and the techniques we had today. So we need to keep a close eye on, on number four. So uh, what, what is available uh, in the sensory motor phases uh, that we're, we're aware of. Um, and we think that there's about six substages stages of sensory motor development. Uh, and the first one, of course, 
uh, begins with the use of reflexes that are automatic, such as a sucking motion, the stroking of the cheek, all of those types of things to come to an understanding that that brings some type of sustenance and attention, right? Uh, primary, so that's a zero to one a month, one to four month. Uh, we have an adaptation of reflexes to the environment. Uh, uh, so in some examples, so an infant will adjust their sucking to accommodate, remember that word accommodate, to, for example, a new pacifier going off of uh, breastfeeding to a to a bottle or something like that. That's a process of accommodation. Um, secondary circulation, repet, re, repetition of actions that make interesting events last. Uh, and this is what uh, we have learned very recent. Uh, well, not re learned, but we're 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 reinforcing with research today, is that infants. Um, uh, do want to interact with their environment, and and uh, the the thing that I that 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 I read when I'm reading literature like this uh, on infants is it's almost like infants are the first actors in society. They they want to, in sense, entertain um, and grab interest from those people that are around them, and they want to be in 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 respects kind of that center of attention, that centerness to, to the, um, what's going on. And that makes sense from a human experience uh, to a survival experience. Again, when an infant is born, they, they don't know how to uh, clean themselves. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't. And so creating an environment where the attention is on that infants, if you think about it, kind of secures their survival. So, but that's the evolutionary side of it. The other side is it's just staying cute. Um, the fourth one is coordinate uh, reaction and applications to new situations. So this is really when infant is really exploring their environment between eight to 12 months. I would probably put that a little more towards five to six months. Um, uh, and what, what, what an infant is doing is it's trying to accommodate into its schemas that it's building uh, in, a, in, in their mind, new information and novel information. So for example, infant taps a bell, it rings, uh, whoops. It rings, uh, tries tapping a new object to see if it will have the same reaction, okay? So it's trying to decide what belongs in certain areas and what doesn't. Uh, between 12 to 18 months, and again, I'd probably lower this one down to you know, eight to nine months, uh, is we have what's called the tertiary circular reaction. And this is where the infant is intentionally going through and discovering new things. So in the example uh, above in the eight to 12 months, it was more an accident of tapping that bell and then the infant went to discover what else makes that noise. In the fifth substage, the toddler is actively going out and seeking objects and discovering what else uh, works with it. And then in the last phase, we have the invention of new means of exploration through mental combination. So this is where the infant kind of starts to get more complicated with their behavior. 
Um, and so this is where they start doing what we call problem solving. So they learn, you know, if they want the, for in this example here, if the infant wants a cracker, then I need to figure out a way to get on top of the table. Oh, there's this chair. If I push the chair over, I, and, and they do this mental problem solving. And it's in this mental problem solving that Piaget really believed is when the child, the infant is going to go on to the next stage of development because it's actively mentally representing their environment. Uh, but again, um, while, while this, these are good guidelines, we do know children represent their, their environment much earlier um, and, and, and much more robust, but these are good general guidelines uh, for, for, for the way an infant um, develops uh, cognitively. There is something uh, known as the theory of core knowledge. So if we, if we say, you know, Piaget really doesn't answer, you know, a lot of the questions I wanna know about thought and thought processes, we do have a couple other theories that kind of help us uh, fill in those gaps from that stage theory to just really understanding um, uh, child knowledge and, and what they what they what they're trying to do. So the theory of co uh, of core knowledge is the theory that basically areas of knowledge are innate and built into the human brain. So if you remember um, at the beginning of the the, the class, um, and we were talking about theories and stuff, and an in intro to psychology, you may remember the big argument of uh, are we born uh, um, like blank slates or bl blank hard drives for which experience writes upon. And that's what develops us going along with Locke and Aristotle. Um, or uh, are we born with capacities? Is our personality, are we born with a certain uh, personality? Um, and, and this is what we're going to call the innate approach uh, going along uh, uh, different philosophical lines of Plato and, and, and uh uh, individuals like him. Um, and the innate argument is that we are born uh, with our capacities, that uh, knowledge is already there. The, the nature, the, and so we call this the nature argument. The nurture argument is that the, we're born with blank hard drives, and that's what experience writes upon. Everything is based on the environment. And what, what we do know, and, and just to kind of settle this argument, is that we know that there are certain things that are innate with the human condition. Um, a person does not need to uh, be taught that they, if they add one to something, they can always add one or subtract some, uh, from a number, that it's infinite, all right? That numbers don't stop. Um, and, and that seems to be an innate ability of humans just to have that basic understanding. We have uh, uh, innate structures that um, cross cultures identifies uh, a, a parental uh, um, uh, lineage such as mom and dad. Uh, you will not find a society that does not have that representation of the female male mom dad role even though in certain uh, cultures those roles are differentiated uh, than the western uh, approach um, 
they, they have the similar concept that there's a person there that's a nurturer and that nurturer is this and there's a person who is a provider and the protector that idea tends to be across cultures um and so what what i'm trying to state with these kind of complex examples is that we do know now that everyone is born with some type of innate knowledge for survival um, we know uh, the the when we get into language um, it is theorized that language the capacity to learn language has to be innate that we have to have some cognitive structures there for the way we rapidly learn language so that's that's kind of what the core knowledge theory is trying to to approach um, infants look longer at and, and this is kind of one of the, the, the things that kind of uh, um, shows that uh, we're born with certain things and so we'll pay less attention to them, but something novel we'll pay attention to. And this is called violation of expectations. And in research, we notice that infants will pay closer attention to objects that are unfamiliar to them because they're trying to figure them out and those who don't. Okay, so in 2007, Spells and uh, Kingsler uh, came out and said, okay, here's what we know. Knowledge that an object moves as a cohesive unit, it does not contact another object unless they are close to each other, and it moves on as a continuous path. This is one thing that uh, we're born, these are things that uh, we, the, these researchers have found that we're born uh, understanding, okay? Knowledge of agents, people act purposefully towards goal. So I gave up the, I gave the example how in every culture there's a representation of the mother, the nurturing, caretaking, and the representation of what we would call in Western culture, the father who is the protector and provider, right? We have those kind of uh, uh, ideas um, and we know that they, they, they have certain goals behind them. So that's an example. Um, knowledge within limits of numbers. Uh, this one, uh, we, we can put kind of a cross through because we actually know since 2007 that infants have a complex understanding of, of numbers and indeed um, uh, they could outperform any of my students in a statistics class uh, that we know they could probably outperform me even though I've had years of training because that's the complex mathematical world of an infant. And we have knowledge of spatial relationships, meaning that we understand that uh, an object at a distance versus an object up close, you can interact, which ones you can interact with that we see in a 3D world, not a 2D world. All right. And so these, these are uh, some examples of things that infants know, and this comes from uh, that 2007 uh, research, is that does an infant uh, understand things that are impossible versus possible? And what we found is, is that infants will look at this object for a much longer time because it's an impossible event. This could not happen, right? Because this would instantly fall to the ground. And it's violating an infant's expectations, in this case, gravity, because this shouldn't be able to happen. So infants will spend much more time looking at this object than this one, this one, 
or this one. So that's a way in which we 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 understand the infant's world uh, in this case. So, if going back to Psych 101, um, we do know that uh, there are types of learning that are happening. We know uh, classical conditioning, where an uh, infant or an adult, for that matter, associates two objects together. The more they're associated in time, uh, you start to react to them uh, the same. Uh, operant conditioning, that's reward and punishment. Um, and uh, imitation is, is, is uh, well, there's a cross-species uh, comparison because uh, we know in a lot of species, the babies imitate the mother and or the father in order to learn skills. And we find the same thing in humans as well. And we have certain idiosyncratic types of, of, of imitations that we do in that, um, so yes, infants will do things for survival. They will imitate trying to lift spoons and stuff like that. But what uh, we spend as a species um, more time towards in infancy and through childhood is yes, so we <laughs> imitate those survival things, but what we spend more time doing is trying to imitate social relationships and the relationships between each other. We spend much more time doing that than learning the survival skills of life. And we'll get into why that is as we go through the course. Cognitive processes, attention and memory is, is, is two that uh, uh, we're interested in. And so um, we do know some important concepts for infancy um, is that attention in infancy, we, 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 we study the difference between what's called selective versus sustained attention. Um, and what we find is that in, in either one of these cases where an infant needs to be surprised by something or it needs to sustain attention on something, infants really lack uh, attention control. Now, I'm gonna qualify this, this topic if you, in these experiments, it's kind of a forced attention thing. Um, if, if anyone's been around infants for any time period of time, we know that they can uh, have incredible amount of attention if it is an interesting, uh, uh, an object of interest. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, early childhood education uh, uh, specialists, um, when they design their classroom, they make sure that there's different centers that provide different sensation and perception opportunities because in the early childhood setting, uh, the educators have learned that uh, to get a child interested in things like, you know, reading, social interaction, problem solving, it really has to be guided by the infant and by the child. Um, and so they set up different uh, uh, kind of centers and then let the child during, you know, the learning time to really interact with the different um, centers of interest. Um, and we do know attention wise, of course, infants are attracted to novelty. I don't think this uh, changes over time, uh, but they do respond less, not surprisingly, they habituate to novelty pretty quickly, much like uh, adults do. 
When we look at memory, we see that three-month-old remembers for one week, 18-month-old for about 13 weeks. Uh, uh, we, we, we're aware of this thing that's called infantile amnesia, which is something that's still being uh, researched uh, today and still isn't well um, understood in that uh, the majority of people um, uh, can't remember anything uh, below the age of about two to three. Um, and, and it's almost like a, it's an amnesic kind of state. Um, and so there's different theories about why this is occurring. One is the overload theory that the, the, the world has become so overwhelming to the infant that it's only stuck with those automatic processes and uh, doesn't worry about remembering everything. It's worried more about surviving in the world and and growing and developing instead of creating those unique memories. The other uh, theories is, is, is trauma-based theories where, uh, you know, if you think about infancy, it's a pretty traumatic area. We know infants feel pain uh, before they're born. So being born is a very painful experience for the infant. Uh, being helpless is an also agonizing for human beings. Uh, so, uh, and, and we're not always able to create our own comfort. We're always relying on someone else to keep our body temperature regulated and all those types of things. So the trauma theory is, is that there was just so much trauma that happens during this period that the, the brain does what it does with trauma and, and creates a amnesia to it. So, uh, those are those are the the the, the working theories. Uh, I think there's still more to be discovered on why infantile amnesia occurs, um, and and we'll have to kind of keep our eyes out on that topic. Okay. So when we look at uh, uh, categorization of numbers and executive functioning, so. Uh, executive functioning is uh, the, the process of making complex decisions. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for many of us, a complex decision can be uh, what we're going to eat tonight, um, what we're going to wear. Okay, those, if you think about it, that, that those are all complex uh, uh, concepts. If you think about even though it becomes an automatic process, just getting into your car, and, and this would be a challenge uh, that, that I'd have for anyone if you want to see the complexity of our world that infants are dealing with, is getting into your car and just turning it on, you have over 300 decisions to make from the point of which fingers are going to grab the keys in your pockets to how you're going to put your hands in the pocket to take the keys out in the first place to get in the vehicle. So, uh, and that's what the executive areas of the brain tries to deal with. Now, we know that a lot, some processes uh, that we do over and over and we habituate to become more uh, uh, um, autom automatic processes, such as getting in your car and starting it. Um, and then there's others that remain very uh, complex. So as we develop uh, learning to read um, uh, algebra, um, uh, you know, whether to date a certain person, um, whether to marry a certain person, uh, you know, um, all of those are, 
are, are all complex decisions that, that this area really deals with. Um, but what do we know? That we do know that infants start to categorize at around four months into very simple categories. Uh, we know that uh, develop a sense of numbers. Um, we know this is happening around the six month period. So this needs to be updated. Uh, executive function, inhibition, developed during the first two years of life. Uh, use, using your words, a prefrontal cortex is far from fully developed. So when we talk about the uh, prefrontal cortex, this is what you would you call the executive area of the brain because it does the executive functioning processes. And so when we talk about the prefrontal cortex throughout this course, uh, note that this is the area that is associated with complex decision-making and executive decision-making. And we do know that it is one of the last areas of the brain to develop as an individual matures into adulthood. All right, so we're gonna stop here because now we're getting into the language aspects and I think that needs to be a separate lecture uh, because it is, has its own complexities and idiosyncratic areas of it. Um, and so for now, we're gonna stop um, uh, the class and uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful day.